Welcome to Four Questions. To improve our understanding of why global poverty persists and how it might be tackled, behavioural development economists harness insights from psychology and economic modelling. To learn more about this fascinating field of research, I'm joined by Gautam Rao, who's the Assistant Professor of Economics at Harvard. Gautam, welcome! Tell me, why is behavioural development economics useful? Why can't standard economics tell us everything we need to know? Uh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, so let me start by giving you an example of uh, a pretty important puzzle that development economists often talk about. Uh, and we call it the Euler equation puzzle. And the idea of the Euler equation puzzle is that we often see in developing countries really high returns to investment at the margin. This means if I were to invest a few hundred dollars more in a small uh, micro-enterprise, I might get a very high return of 70, 80% or potentially even more, uh, which, which is the kind of return on investment you think people would, would just be, would be all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah be, absolutely. That, that, I'd that take that, be, right? Yeah, yeah that would yeah. be very exciting. And you get similar examples from a bunch of individual behaviors, mm. things like, you know, chlorinating your water uh, because that makes you fall sick less. Or, yeah, you know, sure. famous example uh, of deworming mm. your kids, mm. uh, which seems to, you know, get them to make a bunch more money once they're older. Mm. Uh, now, in a standard economic model, what you would learn is if you see these really high returns on investment that are available, what you would also see is that people were getting much richer over time. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Their consumption levels would you be jump really You jumped the chance. Riding. Yeah, you yeah. seize all these opportunities. Exactly. You seize these opportunities. You know, a, a different way of putting it is if you weren't seizing these opportunities, if they were available to you, uh, you know, and yet you were not exploiting mm. them and people were not using the amount of fertilizer, say, we think mm. they should be using or getting the vaccinations we think they should be getting. Well, maybe that's because, you know, you're not investing the extra dollar today in fertilizer because you'd much rather have it now because tomorrow you're going to be so well off that the extra two dollars you get from using the dollar of fertilizer doesn't really matter mm. much to you. Mm. Uh, so there are two ways of phrasing the mm. same puzzle, which is if there's high returns uh, to investment, there should be rapid growth. Mm. And if people aren't exploiting these opportunities, well, it must be because they know they're going to get much richer tomorrow. So who cares about, yeah, sure. about the investment? But of course, both of those things are just not true. Yeah, because they are desperate for those extra resources. Yes, and in fact, people are not, you know, consumption is, is growing, but it's not growing anywhere near mm, fast mm, enough mm. to resolve this puzzle using the standard economic model. Okay, so this is a puzzle. Yes, I think it's it's sort of a deep puzzle. And once you, you know, once you, once you, once you think about it like this, I think you find that many different sort of mini puzzles or questions in development economics uh, are really just the same question in different contexts. Can I just question the appearance mm -hmm. of this puzzle? Mm -hmm. Like, to what extent really are there, you know, billion dollar notes on the sidewalk? Like, is that really a thing? Uh, so, so what we do have evidence of in many places is like, so that I accept at the, the chlorinated margin... Water, well, I accept uh -huh. the chlorinated water uh -huh. thing, uh -huh. but... 
you know, I accept deworming, fine, but are there these megabuck opportunities that aren't being taken up? Is that really, a, has that been empirically shown? So I think it's important to be careful about, so are these megabucks, so, you know, they're megabucks because they're mega people and, mm -hmm. you know, you multiply the returns mm -hmm. for, for these people. Mm -hmm. uh, what we don't know is, so if we take a little micro enterprise mm -hmm. and we drop a hundred dollars on it, uh, or, you know, papers by DeMel, Woodruff, it's, you know, et al. have, McKenzie have done mm -hmm. things like this, you get these really high returns. Mm -hmm. Now, if you then dropped, would that scale, right? Would their returns remain high, not just at the margin, but if I gave them $10,000, would I still get a 70% mm -hmm. return? If I give mm -hmm. them $100,000, would mm -hmm. they now grow into mm -hmm. a corporate titan? Probably not. Mm -hmm. And you know, that we don't have the mm -hmm. evidence mm -hmm. of, but we do have a lot of evidence of these high return uh, investments from a low baseline. Uh, from a low baseline. Right, yeah. And in the standard economic model, people should be exploiting No, no, okay, okay. I just wanted to get us clear yeah. on the empirics. Okay, yes. awesome. Yes, I think we have quite okay, a lot so of evidence. Okay, we, so we've, we've established the empirics. Mm -hmm. Now we have the puzzle. Mm -hmm. How do you solve the puzzle? Uh, great question. So how would standard economics try to okay. solve this puzzle? So they would say, well, you know, maybe there's a really high implicit tax on this on these returns mm. because there's corrupt government officials or there's your, uh, you know, redistributive pressures from from family members. Right. Uh, but these sort of quantitatively don't seem anywhere near large enough to resolve this puzzle. Okay. Right? Even when we have evidence and we understand, yes, Kin will, a very nice paper by past guests of yours, uh, Pam Jakila, Owen Osher, mm. you know, we understand something about how Kin will tax what you make, but the, yeah. but the tax is pretty small compared to sort of these returns of, you know, right. 70 or 80%. So even if investment. you know that your uncles and cousins will come begging for your money, mm -hmm. it people still aren't seizing opportunities, right? Okay. I, exactly. And, uh, you know, the other classic example that, uh, you know, explanation that standard economics would give mm. you is, look, there's credit constraints. Yeah. Sure, there's all these great investments out there. People just are credit constrained. Mm. They don't have the liquidity. Mm. They just mm. don't have the money today mm. to be able to do this, which is right. why a big policy push that, you know, development economists have, have pushed for decades is provide more access to credit. And that's good for yes. many things. Mm. And by no means saying that's a bad thing to do. Mm. But the returns have been, you know, you know, have not really been astonishing. So uh, I think for, for larger firms, maybe we have more evidence that, that there's returns to giving this productive credit. But say mi microfinance, for example, mm -hmm. I guess another past guest of yours has, has talked about, about this. Yeah, you had Rachel Bieger yeah, on the show, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. Right. So for most households, it seems like the returns to microfinance are not that high. Yeah. Now, there might be, you know, certain firms for mm -hmm. whom they are very child, high. Yeah. But the funny thing is that actually that's not an answer in itself. If people have such high returns mm. and for the kinds of investments that are not even lumpy, you mm. know, so if I need to buy a tractor, mm. sure, it's hard to save up for mm. a tractor and I don't have uh, access to credit. But if I need to use a little bit more fertilizer on my plots, which, you know, there are, uh, there's research arguing that in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, Western Kenya, people are not using enough fertilizer and the returns are pretty high. Uh, you don't need loans for that. And you could really save up over time for mm -hmm. that. So why are people not saving up those right, those okay. buffer stocks mm. uh, over time? Mm. Is sort of a big puzzle in a standard mm. model. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay, I'm with you. So, so I guess I've been I've been so hiding the puzzle, but yeah. not telling you yet what behavioral economics would argue. Yeah. So now I'm I, I'm all with intrigue. How, well, how does behavioral development economics solve this puzzle? So uh, there are some ideas and there's some evidence. There's still lots more work to be done. Okay. Uh, and I think the answer is going to be it's a combination of these behavioral factors that can get you a good bit of the way there. 
Uh, one thing that we think is pretty promising is thinking about what we call self-control problems uh, or, you know, just this very simple fact that, you know, all of us, uh, you know, at least I, speaking for myself, you know, I want to go to the gym, but I want to go to the gym tomorrow. I don't want to go to the gym today, you know, and I do want to eat less ice cream, but I want to eat less ice cream tomorrow and not today. And, and you know, we call this limited willpower or limited yeah. self-control in economics. We have a, you know, a theory for it that we often use this model that's called present bias, which yes. is saying, actually, people are very patient in the long run. It's not that people, by the way, an important thing about present bias is not saying that people with present bias don't care about the future. They really yes, care yeah. about the future, you know, and, and they don't distinguish between a year from now and two years from now, for example. They're equally patient over yeah, those yeah. those time horizons but they really, really care about right now, <laughs> right? Right now is just discreetly more important than everything that's not right now, Yeah. okay? Uh, and this, especially if people are overconfident or over-optimistic, so this About is, what they'll do tomorrow. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. this can get you to procrastinate. Yeah, tomorrow I'll go to the gym. <laughs> if you truly believe that tomorrow you will go get the vaccination. Yeah, then it's or, not you know, so much of a sacrifice to not you're do not, it today. Then yeah, it's yeah. totally rational to yeah, wait, yeah, wait sure, a day. Yeah. The trouble is tomorrow shows up and you're the same person, mm. right? Like you're still, you know, tomorrow becomes today. And then tomorrow the I'll problem. write my paper. Tomorrow I'll be really on the ball. <laughs> and, and I know it seems, you know, in a way, like it seems crazy. How do, how would people not learn? And yet yeah. it's true. Yeah. I truly do believe that later this afternoon, I will be working on that paper <laughs> that is pretty close to submission. I really believe it right now. But I really believed it like, you know, so many days this semester and it ain't happened. <laughs> the paper isn't going along, right? <laughs> and and just look, people in developing countries are like people anywhere. They're just like, yeah. you know, they're people, like they're human beings too. They're not robots. They mm. don't have perfect willpower. Mm. And so things like present bias mm. can generate what looks like a high degree of impatience in the short run, but then patience in the long run that can explain some of this stuff, right? So why would you not give up a dollar mm. today, like consume a dollar less today to buy a dollar more of fertilizer to get, say, two dollars tomorrow? Because uh, we really want that dollar today to exactly. buy our ice cream or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And, and in fact, this idea from standard economics that credit constraints are mm. important actually in a way, it needs this maybe behavioral explanation because for mm. these really high return investments, you shouldn't be liquidity constrained because you should be saving up a little mm. bit of money mm. over time mm. so you can make these high return mm. investments. Mm. But we know from theory and some empirical work that things like present bias can generate these liquidity constraints. Right. So even if there are these fantastic gains to come, mm -hmm. I don't care enough about them relative to the gains right now. Uh, yes, yeah, so not quite. I think it's often going to be very important, you know, to not say that I don't care about them, mm. but I kind of think I'm going to do them later. Yes, yes, sorry, yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not that, oh, oh, my kid making 20% more money later, I don't care about, so I won't deworm my kid because it's in the future and mm. I don't care. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, it's not clear to me that something like present bias can explain deworming. Supposing you had mm. a chance to get dewormed every day of the week, mm. then you could say, I do it later. Yeah. If it's a once in a year opportunity, it's not clear to me actually that present bias mm -hmm. can explain that underinvestment. So, you know, I don't want to overclaim this. Mm -hmm. So, you know. So, uh, present bias is just one of the possible factors in conjunction. Exactly. Things, and we're yeah. thinking about other things too. We're doing some work nowadays on what's called loss aversion, right? Mm -hmm. This idea yep. that. Uh, you know, losing, losing, uh, you know, losing a dollar hurts a lot more than, you know, gaining a dollar feels good. 
a lot of these risky investments, which we think are very high average returns, mm. they do have some scope for you to lose money compared mm. to what you expect or even compared to what you have right now. Mm. Uh, and people may really weight that very highly. Look in lab experiments around the world, you know, rich and poor countries, people really care about this. And we have evidence from field behavior increasingly that this matters. And this actually came up in my podcast with Pam and Owen Oja, mm -hmm. Pam Jakila and Oda Oja, how exposure to violence had made people even more reluctant to undertake, to, to, to bear risks. Yeah, yeah. And so it may be that in conflict-afflicted environments or other places, mm -hmm. similar places experiencing poverty, that you might be really, really risk-averse. Yeah. And so not wanting to, to make these gambles. And loss aversion is something in a way even stronger than risk aversion. It's like, it's particularly about losses versus mm. gains. Mm. Uh, and uh, anyway, that's a, mm. a bit of inside baseball, but I think a lot of, sometimes a lot of what we Wait, economists think is risk aversion. I, I'm not oh, sorry, no, inside subject. baseball is an, is an American, is an American uh, expression, I think, oh, I which I learned okay. after coming to this country. Which what does is, it mean? Uh, I think it means like this is an insider's thing, like, you know, oh, okay, uh, okay, cool. your listeners are not going to care. Oh, okay, uh, but right, I was going to okay. plow ahead uh, No, regardless. no, no, that's a useful cultural uh, insight for us both to learn. Thank you. Inside yes. baseball. Okay, yes. I'll bear that. Uh, welcome to America. <laughs> Thank uh, you. So, but but it's, it's a bad thing. If someone says what you're doing is inside baseball, which occasionally I get told, that's a, that's, that's a bad thing. Don't okay. All right. Well, all of that will have gone over my head, but from now, my self-esteem will be eroded. <laughs> uh... <laughs> okay, so let's get back. So talk me through how we solve the Euler puzzle. So one is present bias, another is loss aversion. What else? I mean, I think there's a, there's a thing that we have relatively little evidence on, uh, but it's a very, very basic thing, which is just what do people actually believe about these? You know, these mm. experts, these agronomists, these economists are right. saying, look at these returns. Mm. Do people actually know what these returns are? It's sort of a very simple thing. Mm. We assume in economics, people have rational beliefs. Are people beliefs, aware of beliefs. the possibilities? Mm -hmm. Yes. So are they aware of the possibility? Do they really understand what the returns are going to be mm. and what the distribution of returns are going to be? How do they learn about these? Mm. Often we learn about these things socially. We learn mm. from others. We yes. see someone else attempt something. Yes, absolutely. And we infer from that, was that a good thing yeah. to do? Okay, he's growing this crop mm. or he's using fertilizer. From that, I infer, well, that must be a good thing to do. But in fact, the assumptions in standard economics are, you know, of, of people are Bayesian. They're, they, they, they're like, you know, they follow Bayes rule. Now, I couldn't, I mean, for the life of me, I couldn't do Bayes rule and, you know, invert kind of whatever this, whatever. I, the, I know how to, you know, write down the math and work through it. But in my mind, I, I, I couldn't do it easily, even with a pencil and paper. You know, it's kind of tricky. Uh, but the assumptions of Bayesian learning mm. are really, really quite extreme. And I think we have increasing evidence, you know, mostly from the lab at this point, but, but we're moving so towards field evidence. So does Bayesian learning not happen in real life? I think there are, you know, uh, so I think there are many deviations from Bayesian okay. learning. I think, of course, you know, say maybe experts get closer to it. You know, mm. I think there's, there's instances and experiments where we can't fully reject mm. Bayesian mm. learning. But let me give you some... Let me give you some examples related to kind of work I'm work I'm doing. Yeah. Two examples of failures of mm -hmm. Bayesian learning. So one is this evidence, and we're studying this in the context of of depression, clinical depression, mm -hmm. and what this does to your beliefs and mm -hmm. how you process information. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, a thing about human beings seems to seems to be that they tend to be over a little bit overconfident and over optimistic about themselves and about the future. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, for healthy people. And one way they do this is that they're not Bayesian. When they get good news about themselves or a positive signal, as, yeah. as we would call it, they're super Bayesian, actually. They update just like Bayes rule. Right. When they get negative feedback, negative signal, 
they, they actually managed to forget it and really not update their beliefs very much. They, 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 what kind of negative information? So this would be, so an example of a beautiful experiment is actually giving people feedback about how their looks were rated. Okay. That's horrible. And when you're told, wow, the person said you're really good looking, people are super Bayesian, like, you know, you can Bayes rule bang on, like predicts how they update their quantitative belief about how good looking, you know, what's my rank out of these 10 people? You get positive news, people update great. You get negative news, people don't update. Oh, really? Yeah. So when people tell others that they look nice, they accept it, and when they don't tell them, when they tell them they look horrible, they don't listen. I mean, Is that look, really it, true for you, all people? Doesn't no, it vary no, with... exactly. I'm sure it's not true for all people. For example, I bet, you know, I bet... It... Like someone with low self-esteem, no matter how many times you tell them... There or an go. English person, no matter how many times you compliment an English person, they'll be like, <laughs> I mean, that may also be because about there's sort of there's more norms and you know how, what we interpret from a given compliment mm -hmm. or lack of compliment. Well, is who different, it is and who it is. That's absolutely, you the absolutely. So this uh, what I was describing was a pre-stripped down lab experiment in the U.S. where you know maybe people are more, uh, you know, maybe people are different than the English. But anyway, let's not get into the cultural differences yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but. We're studying this in the context of depression. Mm. So, you know, we think maybe people with depression mm. uh, don't do this. They don't have this behavioral bias in a way mm. of, of uh, overconfidence. Maybe, in fact, they have the reverse. And yeah, that's what I'd assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are reacting too much to negative signals. Yes, about yeah, themselves. absolutely. That's so, what I'd think. So, you know, these are sort of, this is one example, mm. uh, uh, you know, of, and this may have implications for then the kind of human capital investments mm. they make. Uh, mm. I mean, all of these things, of course, just for suffering, mm. like thinking mm. poorly mm. about yourself mm. might, might yeah, make yeah. you sad. Uh, yeah. uh, so, but there's other examples of sort of social learning. So here's an example that I've been thinking about. Very but wait, can I just interrupt yes. that? Yes, yes, yes. It may, we can't, does that really disprove Bayesian learning? Because even if someone in a lab, Mm -hmm. Let's suppose mm -hmm. I don't think I'm beautiful mm -hmm. and let's suppose I'm in a lab and someone tells me I'm beautiful That doesn't necessarily lead me to a Bayesian wouldn't necessarily say that that would lead me to update my preferences because whether I trust You know it matters whether I trust that person where they're representative of the broader community You know they're just this person who is has to tell me I'm pretty. I mean, that's nothing That's not gonna make me think that people in general think I'm pretty uh, Absolutely, although but then why do you update positively when that person tells you you're pretty? Right. right. So the key thing there was you update, you know, asymmetrically to the positive and the negative. Okay. News. Right. But, but okay, that happens. All right. Okay. Right. Okay. So when, when the person, when the random stranger, you know, mm. in the lab experiment tells you you're good looking, you're like, mm. yes, I believe you, <laughs> and I've I've changed my beliefs. I've become more optimistic about what my rank is in this group of ten people. Really, yeah. Uh, but when I get the negative one, I don't. anyway. But no, that's okay. just one paper. But okay, no. you know, here's another example mm. of say of, of in a sense almost mm. just think of the impossibility of Bayesian mm. learning. In in my view. Mm. Uh, I'm biased here, but mm. uh, think of people are trying to decide uh, what you know what school to send their kids to. Yeah, they're gonna ask their neighbors what schools you know they send their yeah. kids to, or mm. they'll observe, mm. and they will infer from that mm. you know what must be a good school, yeah, yeah. what's a good fit for yeah, sort of yeah. kids like mine, mm. and what they're not perhaps uh, mm, taking account of, mm. which a Bayesian would, is that everyone else is doing the same thing too. Mm. That in fact, everyone else also looks around them and yes. thinks, oh, everyone's doing this so we can, yes. you know, that must be the right thing to do. Yes. And in fact, there may all, they may all be what we would call correlated signals, right? A Bayesian would understand the structure of the information they're looking at and say, oh, wow, actually what Alice and Gautam are telling me are not two independent signals. They were both told this by Pam. Right. So Pam is the one source of information. Blame I separately Pam, make... <laughs> Well, well, it's good information. Pam has good information, but then 
But then, right, right all of your yeah. you know, millions of, of listeners so what are going to go. What I'm perceiving mm-hmm. it is multiple multiple people corroborating, but actually, mm-hmm. okay. They, but actually, you might. So so then, mm-hmm. a person who deviates from Bayesian reasoning there, mm-hmm. uh, who exhibits something we call redundancy mm-hmm. neglect, mm-hmm. may overcount those signals. May be right. far too confident mm-hmm. about the wrong thing mm-hmm. uh, because they think they're getting all this independent information right, and they're not. not okay. Right. Okay. So. In some sense, we don't have, you know, so in, in this handbook chapter we wrote on behavioral development mm. economics with Michael mm-hmm. Kramer and Frank Schilbach, mm. uh, you know, we're trying to be, in a sense, we're not claiming that, look, behavioral explains everything mm. and every explanation is behavioral. Yeah. We're trying to say quantitatively how much can present bias explain and what kinds of mm. things can it explain and what kinds of things can it not explain, you know, what can loss aversion explain, what can redundancy neglect explain. Uh, and, you know, in a way that's, I understand why that can frustrate some mm-hmm. neoclassical mm-hmm. economists because they're like, look, you've got like, give me one answer. Don't mm-hmm. give me three answers. But the world is complicated. People sure. are complicated. You know, there are okay, so many things going on. I'm with you. I'm with you on these concepts. I'm with you on the whole enterprise. Can we narrow down, talk about a specific issue um, mm-hmm. like healthcare? Uh, sure. So so here uh, in develop, you know, in the in the research in developing countries on health care by, you know, the research by economists, we kind of think the puzzle is this. We think that there's a lot of demand for uh, uh, for health care, for acute care. Mm. That is when I'm suffering from mm-hmm. something serious right yeah. now. People will, it's in fact, it's a big source of going into debt and bankruptcy yes, and so yeah. on. One of the biggest causes of descent yes. into poverty. Absolutely. Ill exactly. health and paying for it, yeah. Exactly. So people really will, they care about their health. Yes. It makes sense. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, however, they have very low willingness to pay. So they're, they're not really willing to invest in preventive health. Yes. Right. So uh, lots of research shows, uh, you know, by by, you know, a range of different researchers. There's a nice review article by Pascaline Dupas and Ted mm. Miguel uh, that there's really a, a very sharp decline in demand. As soon as you start charging even, you know, pennies like, you know, 25 cents a dollar yes. for a mm. preventive health investment, mm. uh, which the experts think is pretty effective and sort of lasts a long time. And by the way, if you give it to people for free, they will use it. Mm. You know, there used to be, in fact, the psychological idea that if you don't make people pay for it, they won't use it. Yes. In fact, I think behavioral economists, development economists studying this in the field have shown that that's not right. In fact, you give it away to people for free and they'll mostly use it, mm. but they won't pay a small amount for it. Now, mm. what's going mm. on there? How do we reconcile those things? Mm. This really low demand and high price elasticity for preventive care mm. compared to mm. uh, compared to acute care. Mm. And there again, we think things like present bias might really matter. Mm. They might matter in two ways. One is, as I said, people with present bias might end up liquidity constrained because, mm. you know, in these economic models, we understand how this will yes. cause people to just not save up enough and then they don't have access to loans and stuff. So, you know, that kind of worsens matters. Uh, but second, a lot of these preventive health activities involve hassle costs, not just money costs. It's not about present bias is not just, in fact, is mostly not about spending money now. Oh, really? It's about, yeah, it's about stuff because money is not the same as utility, you know, like, Think about me. If I if I had to, you know, you charged me a thousand dollars for being on this podcast, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, okay, it's okay to tell Standard the tell fees. the listeners that. Standard fee. Uh, okay, I'm kidding. But but supposing supposing you had charged it's me ten dollars. How I actually uh, pay for my expensive tea habits. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, sorry. So, uh, this is an unpaid engagement. Uh, Harvard University uh, and, and and the IRS. 
so supposing you charge me $10 for this and I gave you $10 today, it would actually not reduce the rest of my consumption today mm. because I am not liquidity constrained. Uh, yeah. I'm lucky enough to be pretty well off. Mm. I'm not going to consume $10 mm. less of smoothies today just because I gave you $10. Uh, yeah. uh, so the thing that really matters mm. is stuff that, you know, what we call utility, like, mm. you know, really stuff you feel today, mm. which could be your consumption, mm. but it, it's often going to be something like effort. Mm. So there's a lot of effort and hassle costs involved in a lot of preventive care. Right. I need to go to the doctor. Yeah, it's going to take a few hours. Day, yeah. In settings I've worked in, in India, the doctor is going to be so rude to yes. you. It's going to treat you, you know, like it's going to treat you really poorly. Uh, uh, you know, there, there's the waiting time, you know, waiting time, like think of, you know, chlorinating the water, like there's all these things that are, you know, walking to the further away water yeah. source, which is cleaner. Yes, a faff. There are so many things that are kind of painful today. Yes. Uh, setting, setting up a mosquito, you know, mosquito net. It's mm. kind of a pain in the ass. I don't know mm. if you ever slept under mosquito many, nets. Many, many yes. times. Yeah. But I like, guess it's, it's, it's a little bit of a pain. Mm. Uh, so those are the kinds of things where people with present bias will procrastinate. Mm. Mm. Okay. Whether we think they're going to do it mm. in the future and not do it. Mm. Uh, and, and present bias causes things like liquidity constraints. Mm. So there's evidence that if we ease people's liquidity constraints, they will invest more in preventive health. Mm. But sort of the deeper question is, well, why are there those liquidity constraints mm. in the first place? And for that, I think we need something like uh, present bias to explain them, at least in economic models. Okay. So this is the insights from behavioral development economics looking at like chlorination and mosquito nets. Are these problems of preventive healthcare unique to poor places? Uh, no, absolutely not. I think for many things we find, you know, we find very similar findings in rich countries. Mm. I think one difference is sort of think of this chlorination example mm. and think of the mosquito, you know, the mosquito mm. net example. Mm. These are not things you have to deal with in rich countries because the government takes care of these things already. You don't need to bother with treating your water or boiling your water because the water coming out of your pipes uh, is already clean. And mm. I mean, for me, when I moved to the US, this was astonishing. Like I can drink water out of the taps. Like this is, it's great. It's mm. so cool. Honestly, uh, every single time I, uh, I, so I used to do a lot of field work in rural Africa. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite things was coming home and just like turning on the kettle. Yeah. Like instead yeah. of having to make a fire, I was yeah. like, wow, yeah. this is great. Or having your shower rather than, you know, throwing your bucket over my head. I'd be like, I'm living the dream. The showers are very luxurious, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, yes, I also grew up in water scarce, in a water scarce country. Uh, so, so you're saying all of it, yeah, so preventive healthcare, is that also a problem for people in rich countries? It, is, it absolutely is. And then, but, but, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis mm. for their lives, it's often less of a problem because right. they just, the there's less hassle costs, mm. right? Like there's, the, the reason this stuff is things like present bias can hurt you with preventive healthcare mm. is because there's sort of this hassle or utility mm. or pain mm. or effort mm. cost up front. And that's often taken care of in the you know, in the environments we live in, uh, in rich countries. Mm. So I guess one might say that the, the, the retreat of the state and retreat of state services might compound the onus on the individual to deal with some of this stuff themselves. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, I think, uh, you know, behavioral economics will often make the case mm -hmm. for, for the state, because state I think when once we have a more realistic, just realistic and accurate view of human behavior, we will realize that there are things that in a standard economic rational model, like sure, people will take care of this thing, mm. but they're not, they're human. They're not going to take care of everything. Mm. And this can increase, you know, the returns to 
to to to state you know state intervention or policy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so here's a question. But to what extent is ill health really caused by poor people's poor choices? Like if I look at respiratory problems, you know, pollution in Chinese cities, isn't that a function of environmental governance at sort of domestic and global levels? Or if I take HIV AIDS, uh, one might say that's, you know, a behavioral development economics. Would they say that's due to risky sexual behavior and we could help them become less risky? Or what, like one of my favorite papers is by Emily Oster, and she compares giving people information uh, about preventive sex and how to reduce the risk of HIV AIDS, and she finds that actually that doesn't make much difference, just giving them the information. What really makes the big difference is if they live in an area where there's a high likelihood of death from other causes. Like if you're likely to get malaria and then die, why would you bother faffing around with condoms and, redu- and reducing pleasure or reducing the risk of HIV AIDS when you already think there's a high likelihood of dying from something else. Um, Kathy Campbell's also done this work in uh, South Africa where she finds that men going down the mines weren't that bothered about using condoms because they had a very very high likelihood of death. Um, so in, in those sorts of contexts to what extent is a nudges at the individual level relevant uh, or you know tweaking individual is about is it about poor people's behavior that we have to change? Do we have to change stuff at the behavioral at the individual level or, or at another level? Uh, so I think it's going to depend on the particular health uh, issue. particular health yeah, issue. Yeah. Absolutely, there's I have absolutely no reason to think, and I doubt any behavioral economist will say that you know something that's a classic common pools problem, mm-hmm. like you know pollution, mm-hmm. air pollution, mm-hmm. can be solved by you know that the right solution to that is some change in individual behavior. Like maybe there's work on, you know, there would be something useful to be done on individual behavior to pollute less. Right, sure. But once the air is poisonous, mm. you know, mm. like there's not, what are people supposed mm. to do? And, mm. you know, behavioral economics has has nothing particularly to say mm. about what mm. an individual will mm. do when mm. the air is, is, is poisoned. Right, okay. Uh, you know, so it might say that people will under, you know, maybe a person, you know, with standard preferences and behaviors would take a little bit extra action to keep themselves safe in that, you know, in in those circumstances. But like, that's really not the first order thing that's going on there. Um, On the other example, I really like those, you know, those papers you mentioned and Emily Oster's work. Uh, And I think an important thing that behavioral economics has tried to take seriously and Mm. behavioral development, Mm. hopefully increasingly seriously, is thinking about magnitudes, thinking about how much of a given issue can we explain, you know, with a with a particular behavioral model. Mm. So, for example, it totally makes sense that people will invest less in uh, in uh, uh, in safe sex mm. if there's a very high chance of, of dying anyway. Mm. Now, the question is, does that explain all of their lack of investment in safe sex or does that only explain 5% of it or 10% mm. or 20% and how do we explain the rest? You know, that's not quite my area of expertise, mm-hmm. so I, you know, I yeah, shouldn't sure. venture something there. Well, let, but, let, let's, yeah, no, I understand your point. Mm-hmm. So there might, be, there, there might be something extra that can be done. Okay, let's go back mm-hmm. to your area of expertise and I really enjoyed your paper on integrated schooling. Can you share with us about that? Uh, sure. Yeah, this was uh, a research I did in my PhD dissertation, mm. which was studying this this fascinating policy change in India, mm. which now requires, you know, almost every private school in the country. And there are many private schools mm. in India. So mm. something like 35 percent of Indian kids, and this is rising very fast, mm. go to private schools already. Mm. 
Uh, and so it required about 20, you know, these schools to start saving about 25% of their mm. seats for mm. low-income children mm. with full scholarships. Mm. And those low-income children were selected using lotteries. Mm. Uh, you know, of course, their parents had to choose to apply in the first place. So I studied a precursor of this policy change. You know, this policy change mm. I just described is for every private school in the country. Mm. We have 300 million mm. school-age kids. You know, this is a huge thing. Mm. And I think there, there needs to be lots of research on it. But a few years before this, the state of Delhi did the same thing. Mm. Although they did it only for these, you know, almost only for these really elite, fancy private schools that sort of rich kids go to. Mm. And so what I, uh, what I did there was go in and try to understand for these rich kids who are really, you know, arguably the future sort of leaders of India in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, how are they affected by being integrated with poor kids? How does it mm. change what we call their social preferences and behavior? Mm. So their generosity, mm. their, their concern for equality, how egalitarian mm. they are. Mm. Uh, how does it affect their willingness to socially mm. interact with mm. poor people, mm. uh, to work together with them in teams mm. or conversely to discriminate against them? And so to do this, uh, I we conducted sort of a lot of lab experiments and field experiments to measure these outcomes mm. for, for rich kids and, you know, found things like having, uh, you know, 20% of the kids in your classroom be poor uh, makes you more generous towards others in both dictator games, but in the in real life, you sign up more mm. for uh, volunteer, more for charitable activities. Mm. The really interesting thing is that it makes you more generous towards poor kids, mm. but also towards other rich kids, which is uh. not what I anticipated. So uh, mm -hmm. living cheap, uh, working, uh, learning cheap by jail with portraits makes you sort of develop empathy generally. Yes. And so the thing that seems to be going on is, you know, maybe empathy, but uh, at least one, or one, social cooperation or one, how one, ev one thing that we I have a hint of evidence mm -hmm. of is that it's more you become more uh, egalitarian. You care more about equality, oh, really? which means that in these dictator games, which mm -hmm. is where I, you know, you get, say, 10 rupees mm -hmm. and you have a chance to share it with someone mm -hmm. else. Or even you have to choose how two other people should mm. share things. Mm. You're much more likely to say it should be shared equally. I have a question. How long do these ta effects take? So I don't know. I studied these kids mm. after they'd already been uh, been integrated. They'd been first. I think it's very important that they were integrated in preschool. These right. were not teenagers yeah. Yeah, thrown yeah, together. No. no yeah. Uh, you know, having grown up in these different planets, say you know, mm. right, you know, a mile from each other in Delhi, uh, but rather they were integrated when they were only four years old. Mm. Right. And and when I estimate these effects, these kids have been treated or integrated yes. for uh, for, you know, typically for uh, four years. Mm. I should add for our non-economist listeners, treated would be like being exposed to the intervention. Right. It's just you've been, you've been treated with having uh, having mm. a more diverse classroom. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and we also find that this makes them, you know, discriminate less. They'll pick uh, uh, they'll pick poor kids more as sort of teammates. Mm. Uh, and all of this, importantly, is not about how you treat the poor kids whom you personally know who are in your class. Oh, now that is interesting. This is mm. about generalized outgroup members. Mm. This is about how you treat a new poor person whom you will right, never meet again. because a lot of research shows that, you know, once you... Sure, you develop individual relations and individual rapport, and this particular person is nice, this particular Absolutely. person is nice. But what you're saying is your stereotypes about the poor in general change, and it, you become more egalitarian. Exactly. So, mm. it, you know, all of these results I was telling you are about how do you share money with, how do you choose as a teammate, how, uh, how do you go to sort of play dates with for, for poor kids, for different poor kids, so people in your neighborhood whom you might have a chance to get to know. So your research implies that it's really great that Indian private schools now integrate... 
Uh, yes, you know, this is one part of the calculus. Yeah, There's yeah, other things, yeah. of course, going on. There's impacts on the schools. And, you know, in work I tried very hard to do but failed and hope to resurrect is try to understand what are the effects on the poor kids of going to these better yeah. schools. And the early results, you know, my results are not watertight there. Question. But, uh, I have a question. Sort of mm -hmm. I bet one concern, and this is certainly a case in England, that parents might be, con the, ri the parents mm -hmm. of rich mm -hmm. children yeah. might say, oh, you know, these poor, unruly, badly behaved children, you know, various yeah, elite yeah, stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. Are there any negative effects on the rich kids? Uh, great, great, great question. So I have, you know, work on this. So though, importantly, there's basically no effect on their test scores and learning. Oh, really? There is one hint of a negative effect. So there's no effect on things like violent behavior. There's a little bit of this effect. And on, you mentioned this on, in the paper. What is yes. this bad effect? So this is on cursing. So you're more <laughs> likely to curse, uh, be, be, uh, be caught for cursing in school. How did you manage to pick that? I pick up, I pick up on that. Uh, because so surveys of teachers, essentially. Right. But how did you know to include that question? Oh, it was. I, I grew up in India. I, I knew this would be a thing that might potentially. But but I thought this action, was an important yeah, yeah. point mm -hmm. that, and I was thinking that when we do quantitative research, we choose the variables of interest. Mm -hmm. And if you're an outsider, not used to those sorts of environments, you might not pick up on that variable. You might not recognize it of interest. You know, and I think this is always the sure. case with quantitative research. We as an outsider come in, we blinker ourselves, we pre-choose, uh, we pre-select the variables of interest. And I think this is something, I mean, there are two issues to pick up on. You know, uh, Rachel Glenister recently uh, co-authored co a paper on women's empowerment. She, she talks about the importance of doing qualitative research, listening to women before, do, before designing and developing your quantitative study but I think what you're also raising in this study or at least how I interpreted it is the value of someone coming from the Indian community knowing the sorts of things that could be an issue so for me I read it as the importance of you know someone with in-depth long-standing knowledge of what could be an issue uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, my mother diagnosed why I did this research, which I, you know, I was not self-aware enough to know. So I, I moved every two or three years growing up in India mm -hmm. and I've, I grew up studying in schools where, you know, there was no roof, uh, occasionally and, uh, the kids were pretty poor, but I also attended pretty fancy schools mm -hmm. in Delhi towards the end of my schooling career. So in some sense, this was all very, uh, this, this research was to be honest, almost everything I study in my research is basically driven by something in my life. Mm. Uh, uh, so we're doing work now on the long run effects of corporal punishment in schools and so on. So we got beaten a lot in India. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so I think... So I you're think doing an bring... equals one study of the effects of corporal punishment? No, no, we're doing a big statistical <laughs> study uh, using data from the UK and the US oh, and really so awesome. on. Uh, where there's sort of historical variation and when things were banned oh, and, cool. and, uh, and so on. So, uh, so yeah, so I, of course we all bring we all bring our, you know, perspectives mm. to our research. And I think it's important to have people from developing countries included. Look, sometimes, of course, we do want to be, as, a, as an Indian person mm. uh, who works with, uh, you know, people of other nationalities in India, I have learned a lot from them, though, because... Mm. There are many things that I don't even notice yes, walking around India. Point. Yeah, we take it Whereas for granted. I, wa I, yeah. I walk around with my colleague who's, you know, German mm -hmm. or American, and they're like, what's up with that? Yeah, or did and Trump I, I, visit I, in America? Yeah, like, oh, this yeah. is weird. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, mm. so I think we want to have... A mix. We want to have a mix of people working mm. on these things. But I, I would just say, perhaps at present, that the mix is one-sided. And it would I, be I'm sure that's though. right. I mean, I, I guess there's some question of, like, who... Uh, <laughs> 
so you know when i go back to india uh the the ideas that are driving mm. indian policy makers that are in indian mm. newspapers mm. are mostly from indians yes, so no, sure. in some sense yes. we may overestimate the importance of our western or, academia of our own, yes, you know yes. like oh well like there are no not enough you know mm. you know indian men uh, studying this but of course what's happening in india is, is well anyway. okay i said i think there are two separate questions are we in the west learning enough from indian scholarship and there we can say yes we should be learning more and absolutely so yeah, i, th- yeah, I yeah. think there's a yes, separate question yes, okay agree. now here i want to raise another question to what extent are are these problems that you're identifying unique i mean to what extent do these problems arise because of poverty like scarcity for example i really enjoyed the um wealth development report on mm-hmm. mind Mm-hmm. behavior society whatever it's called on how poverty can impede cognitive function or mental bandwidth can, can you tell us more about that uh yes so this is a very exciting kind of frontier area mm-hmm. in behavioral development mm-hmm. uh in behavioral economics and mm-hmm. in psychology uh so what we do have evidence of is that uh you know at least some evidence it would be nice to have even more that even facing conditions of scarcity that is say sugarcane farmers mm-hmm. in india mm-hmm. right before harvest when they are pretty cash poor versus mm-hmm. right after harvest mm-hmm. when they're pretty cash rich there's evidence that their you know aspects of cognitive function are really different sort of mm-hmm. overall measures of fluid intelligence mm-hmm. executive mm-hmm. function and so on you know very big effects uh, mm-hmm. uh, potentially as large as uh you know pulling an all nighter mm-hmm. staying up all night mm-hmm. how that makes you mm-hmm. feel in the morning mm-hmm. uh maybe how farmers feel before mm-hmm. versus after mm-hmm. harvest uh now we'd like to have more evidence on these mm-hmm. things uh what we don't have so much evidence of is how this translates into actual economic behaviors mm-hmm. now of course if your mind is working like you're you've been up all night we suspect there are going to be implications but that we don't have much evidence mm. on we also have other work uh, by people like johannes haushofer and others on the effect of poverty on stress mm. and we know that chronic stress is pretty bad for your health i think we still don't fully understand what 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 stress at least in the short term does to economic outcomes and behaviors mm. and sort of you know uh, but there's these arguments out there that poverty can cause various psychological uh uh sort of you know implications such as sort of to do with scarcity taxing your mental bandwidth increasing stress and that those things might in turn affect your decision making and your productivity in a way that helps keep you in poverty mm-hmm. so you could have a sort of psychological poverty trap mm-hmm. at this point i would say this is more of a hypothesis with a really, little bit okay. of really compelling evidence mm. about the effect of poverty on stress poverty mm. and scarcity mm. on cognitive function but we still need to work to kind of close the close mm. the loop on this uh you know we're doing some work for example on things that seem associated with poverty so one thing we found say in urban india is uh, uh is is that the the urban poor sleep really terribly they lie in bed for 7 to 9 hours yes. a night but they get about 5 hours a night I look at this in my own research in garment mm-hmm. workers and how little sleep they get exactly that garment, exactly yeah. that's a that's a uh, uh, and, and, that's and, a situation and, and, and I th- working and in, I yes. think and yeah. I think this is one thing that maybe uh, manufacturers and governments don't recognize how yes. low wages yes. um can mean that people are in terrible accommodation yep. not getting enough sleep and then that's bad for productivity so I think for labor economists would we'll talk about um the relationship there exactly so we're looking at what you know if you can improve people's sleep living conditions yes. in india which is not so expensive yes you would add to the same research yes yeah, 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 <laughs> it happens uh uh that's why we're talking so 
So, you know, how does that affect their well-being? How does yeah. it affect their productivity yeah. and earnings mm-hmm. and savings? But also, how does it affect actually their, quote-unquote, behavioral biases? Yes. Right? So, so far, we've talked about behavioral biases. You know, now, this is a point. Like, for example, if I'm super exhausted, that following day, I eat really badly. Yes. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. absolutely. And people, there are argue, there are theories about sort of sleep is important mm-hmm. for replenishing willpower, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. So, well, you know, we've not really got into so much today, but, you know, mostly behavioral development economics has sort of been saying, look, there are these fairly universal psychologies Mm. like limited willpower, Mm. which everyone Mm. has. And we need to take those into account when we design policies for human beings, including the poor, Mm. including people in developing countries. Mm. And sometimes it's going to lead to a different Mm. diagnosis Mm. of the problem. Mm. Sometimes it's going to lead to different policy policy implications of if this is the problem, what do you do? Mm. Uh, but, But it's possible that some of these behavioral biases might themselves be you know, uh, be affected by the conditions, by the very difficult conditions of Mm. living in poverty. Mm. And that's not a fixed thing about the people. Mm. That's not saying, look, you know, it's sort of saying, look, if you lived in those conditions, you might also, Mm. you know, have even less self-control. But wait, when we talk about stress, is stress relate is stress correlated with poverty Actually, like you know uh, people in the city have highly stressful lives yes I, I think and that, i think we should be intervening more for them yes <laughs> so in fact similarly with sleep mm-hmm. uh you know actually, yeah that's a universal and that's we a western crisis right so, so i think we've you know we've started to learn in the u.s that sort of the poor are more you know on average the poor and rich don't necessarily sleep very differently but the poor are more likely in the u.s to to have you know sleep either far too much which is for example a symptom of things like depression as oh, well right, okay, yeah. or, or bad ill health mm-hmm. you know Mm. or sleep far too little but okay. on average maybe they're similar oh well then Rachel Meagher my previous guest will tell us that we should never listen to averages right yes 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 exactly <laughs> okay so wait here's another question mm-hmm. here's something that angers me yeah really angers me mm-hmm. so often when I read an economics paper behavioral development economics included it says look we examined this poverty, this this intervention. We looked at this policy intervention, whether it's a field experiment, uh, uh, an RCT, whatever. And look, we found this great outcome. It improved people's health by, let's say, ten percent. And what bothers me is that sometimes those don't benchmark mm-hmm. their findings against something else that could deliver even greater benefits. You know, whenever. You know, the way we make our graphs is hugely political. The scales that we use, you know, we can show it going nicely up and up and up. But if we considered something comparatively that could be, you know, I'm sorry for the listener, I'm with my hands, I'm gesticulating, created a graph that would be illustrative if only you could see it. It was a, it was a beautiful gesticulation. <laughs> it, it was brilliant, it was, right? It was very <laughs> Anyway, so my point is, what are we benchmarking the effects of these nudges against? And are we being too satisfied with relatively small wins? That, that's my concern. In a way, I think that nudges are actually less subject to this critique than a lot of other stuff. Mm. So a lot of famous examples of nudges, you know, the most famous example in behavioral economics of a nudge was defaulting people into saving, investing money in their 401k. This is like this pension plan that, you know, in the US you need to put money into Mm. versus not. And it Mm. has this huge effect on whether people are contributing Mm. or not. Mm. Now, maybe they catch up over time anyway, but but, but there's beautiful work, uh, work by people like Ratchetti and so on, in Denmark, mm. actually, that precisely shows that the effect is far larger than if the government were to subsidize, right? So if the government wants people to save more, a way to do it is to give them tax mm. subsidies for saving. Mm. And they show it's far, far more effective to just change the default to be we're going to put put some more money in, 
right? That's far more effective dollar for dollar than this much more expensive thing of subsidizing savings. Mm. So, in fact, nudges are often precisely, I think, compared with, and look, here's the less behaviorally realistic or sophisticated way of doing it. And for economists, at least, what's the answer to that is mm. prices. Mm. Pay people to do it, mm. right? And in fact, the nudges are often saying, look, the, the nudge can actually do a lot better, and the nudge is usually very cheap to do, mm. uh, so can do a lot better than, uh, so than So I guess than that's the classic things. reply. So even if but, I'm saying there could be something else that would have effects of a far greater magnitude, the, the reply would be, yeah, but our nudges are so cheap that dollar for effect, uh, ours work out quite well. Yes, and it could even be an overall effect could be mm -hmm. could be big. For example, the Chetty paper finds that the government subsidies for savings do zero. Like a, mm -hmm. you know, a dollar of government subsidies gets you one cent more of saving. Okay. And by the way, mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, in his paper, mm -hmm. uh, like the the poor don't respond to the government subsidies; they respond to the nudge. The rich respond to the government subsidy, but in a way that takes advantage of it and sort of undoes it. Oh, right. So so there's also some important mm. potential heterogeneity mm. in mm. how susceptible people are to nudges, mm. at least in the savings domain. But but let me say yeah. also that mm. I don't want you to I don't want people to conflate behavioral economics with nudges. Nudges okay. is like one very small part of the behavioral economics agenda. It's been very successful and popular because Can it's... you just de define nudges yeah, for the so, listeners? Just to so clarify. by nudges, we mean, uh, you know, to, if I, you know, to, uh, uh, what uh, Cass Sunstein and uh, Richard Taylor talk about nudges, these are things which are uh, not materially changing individuals' choice sets. Mm. So not, you know, a nudge, giving, paying people to do something is not a nudge. Mm. It's sort of changing their yeah. sort of choice set and incentives. It's putting it's the, just removing a, the cookies from the till so that people don't buy the cookies while they're waiting to get their groceries. So thing. that would not be a nudge because oh, it's really? gone from your choice set. It would be even something milder than that. Oh, it's right, like okay, you sorry. put the cookies in front or you put something else in front. So it's, it's, it's even smaller things than that. It's the default that you do contribute money to your savings plan or not when it only takes you 15 minutes to call HR and say change it. Mm. Like that's that's a nudge. Mm. Uh, and a lot of behavioral economics and all the things we've talked about really have very little to do with nudges. Look, if people have willpower problems and it's hard to kind of save money, people undersave, if people undersave mm. for retirement, maybe some nudges can help like defaults. Okay, so let but me, it's not about nudges. Okay, let me remove nudge. Let me remove mm -hmm. the word nudge from that question. Okay. My, my concern still applies mm -hmm. about how I think there's a tendency with some programmatic interventions or policy interventions to only look at the effect of that intervention and see a 10% change or whatever and be easily satisfied with that without taking a comparative approach. So one of my favorite papers from last year was by Lance Pritchett, benchmarking one of the best aid programs by BRAC against international immigration and sustained economic growth and showing a difference of 40-fold on in people's incomes. And I wonder whether we should do that more routinely, that kind of benchmarking, when looking at programmatic interventions. Sure. I mean, you know, in, in development economics, there's been increasingly this benchmarking against cash transfers, yes, which yes. itself now there's yeah. some, you know, uh, some pushback against, but I think that's yes, perfectly reasonable. Yes. But but I mean, the thing you just said of benchmarking this against economic growth, it's not like, sure, like, but, you know, mm. maybe every paper can say, and this is small compared to economic growth. Mm. I, I mean... I personally sure, would welcome seems, that. But that's fine. I think mm -hmm. like readers know that should know mm -hmm. that that's small compared to economic growth. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nothing beats sustained economic growth in the long I, run. I would like to beat that drum more, that's all. Sure. Mm -hmm. But but that's fine. I mean, then we could sort of say, yeah, that's that, that's fine. You could mm -hmm. say, but, but, the, but, but that... You don't even need to do the research then, mm -hmm. right? You yeah. would just say, well, forget about all this stuff, just do sustained economic growth. <laughs> so why study 
HIV or you know mm-hmm. safe sex mm-hmm. or uh, or anything. I, I just I personally just think it's important to be aware of the difference in magnitude and to, to, to what extent different things can be transformative. I, I completely agree with that, but I don't think that's in any way specific to behavioral think, development. I, no, 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 uh, no, no. I think but, this is my, my wider, yeah, my wider yeah. concern that we might be easily satisfied by small wins. So, yes. And so, that, so I, I think I it's important to be aware of the range of tools in our toolbox and not to be siloed and blinkered into thinking mm, 10% that's great that's all yes yeah uh, I, uh, I can't disagree with that all right well that's how I like to end all conversations anyway Gautam uh, thank you for like the most phenomenal chapter I learned so much from it and I really would encourage it can you remind us all of the name of the book uh, yes so the handbook, the handbook, handbook of behavioral economics uh, it's in volume two so those of us who procrastinated and didn't get it in for the deadline for volume one are in volume two Uh, so we're in volume two Uh, I think the very last chapter that got Mm. finished or maybe Mm. the second last Uh, it's called behavioral development economics Yes, you put a, get a bunch of behavioral economists to write a handbook. Uh, it's just a <laughs> recipe for disaster. Uh, no, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure chatting. Uh, uh, lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Okay.